0: Hi, you're listening to Stefan Lavera Podcast, episode 247. Today, my guest is Luke Groman. He's the founder of Forest for the Trees. And we talk about a range of things, Bitcoin as store of value versus Bitcoin as the medium of exchange. And also, we explore this question around whether Bitcoin is recreating the Hunger Games. This show brought to you by Swan Bitcoin. This is the fastest way from zero to Bitcoin. They've got a really easy sign up, they have no altcoins, they are really cheap, they're available in all states in the US. Swan Bitcoin allows you to create a recurring purchase plan, like $100 a week or $20 a day. And you can also make one-time buys. Swan supports bank wires for larger amounts or ACH transfers for smaller one-time buys. I think they're the best place to send your friends and family when they are ready to start buying Bitcoin. Send them to swanbitcoin.com Levera and Swan will drop $10 of free Bitcoin in their account when they become a member. That's swanbitcoin.com Levera. Unchained Capital are building Bitcoin-native financial services on a foundation of multi-signature. They are a leading team in the industry, and if you need to secure your coins, multi-signature vaults are now made easy thanks to Unchained Capital. You can build them on your own, or if you want the white glove treatment, they have a concierge onboarding service available for you. So they will ship you the hardware wallets, they'll answer your questions, they'll do a Zoom call with you, and deposit $1,000 of Bitcoin in your vault. Now, that's normally $1,500, but you get a $50 discount if you use the code LAVERA. Unchained Capital also offer an OTC desk. Uh, It's a great service for anyone interested in using it as part of your Bitcoin retirement accounts, and they offer advanced business account features as well. Go to unchained-capital.com to find out more. Cyphersafe.io. So if we're thinking about securing our coins, you've also got to be thinking about how they are backed up and would you be able to recover them that's where cipher safe's metal backup seed products like the cipher wheel or the bitcoin recovery tag come in and the bitcoin recovery tag specifically helps you with recovery it's a stainless steel tag that shows the information like the original wallet the gap limit the derivation types and the scripts used you can get a different one for each of the major hardware wallet types and it attaches to your seed word backup with a stainless steel cable it's also got a website link for recovery to help you or your heirs in recovering the coins on Electrum, so it really adds that value of helping you recover in practice. Go and get yours at ciphersafe.io and use the code LAVERA for a discount. Luke, welcome to the show. Glad
1: to be here. Thanks for me on, Stefan.
0: So Luke, you've been chatting a bit about Bitcoin recently and thought it'd be great to have a chat with you, but first, could you tell us a little bit about yourself and I guess economically, where would you place yourself?
1: Sure. So, by way of background, I spent uh, almost 20 years in, on the sell side in investment research and investment equity sales, a couple different regional brokerage firms in the Midwestern United States. We were doing very bottoms up in the weeds type of fundamental research, pioneers in both of those at both of those firms. At both of those firms, I had a role where I was one of the founding editors of a weekly product that we put together that married both our deep fundamental work with macro and thematic work I was doing on my own. And both products ended up being very popular with our client base. And as we went into the 2008 timeframe, and then in the aftermath of it, in particular, where the world was becoming increasingly macro and central bank driven, I was spending more of my time doing that. By 2013, I was looking to do macro full time at a conversation with my partners to talk about me doing that. And from a marketing standpoint, we just couldn't quite figure out how to position a macro product in the way I was looking to do it with what we were known for in terms of that deep in the weeds, bottoms up fundamental research. So we decided the best thing to do is part ways amicably. And I hung out my own shingle as FFTT, which stands for forest for the trees. And in early 2014, what we do is aggregate a large amount of publicly available data from a whole disparate array of resources and trying to identify developing economic bottlenecks. And, and because it's been my experience throughout my career over the last 25 years now that uh, excess investment returns accrue to those areas set to either benefit from or be hurt by economic bottlenecks and so we're just looking for things that are that are coming to a head whether that's things like the housing bubble in 08 or whether it is tech bubble or whether it is the benefits where something we discussed a lot last year where the fed was going to have to step in and increase their balance sheet in a big way and that implied positive things for certain asset classes up uh, those types of things are what we're looking for so we've been uh, at it for seven years and it's been a lot of fun
0: so you've got this idea of well i As you say, looking at the forest for the trees. So where did Bitcoin come into it for you and how did you come across it and how did you do your own process of learning about it?
1: So where Bitcoin came in for me was really... It was a process. It started in 2008 for me when I was very well positioned uh, personally, and, and, and our clients were very well positioned for what happened in 2007, 2008. Personally, I was in all cash by October of 07, because it's based on a number of things we were seeing in our research. Uh, at Cleveland Research Company, it seemed pretty clear to me that there was significant risk of the financial system collapsing. To me, that was apparent by October of 07. We remained in cash until 4Q08, and at that moment, you started to see the Fed start to do qe then but where it really started to hit home for me was in march of 09 when the fed did the first round of what i called the big qe where instead of just buying mortgages they started buying treasuries with printed money i think it was a trillion dollars and that to me was a real game changer because it it seemed like the fed was just effectively financing the u.s government and so i think i did what a lot of people did then which was okay they're printing money and buying sovereign debt and that's what uh The most famous episode of that of something like this happened, which was to say Weimar Germany in the 1920s. And so I went home and got on Amazon and bought some books on Weimar Germany and started researching, Okay, what's going to happen when. Result of this, and I went from a view that this is going to be hyperinflationary. You quickly realize, as you read these books on Weimar Germany, that there were a number of uh, things that, while similar, were were also very dissimilar. Primarily in terms of the domestic political situation in the U.S. relative to that in Weimar Germany, uh, it was was much more cohesive. Uh, there was huge political unrest, violence. Uh, political assassinations regularly in Germany. It just wasn't the case in the US. And then secondly, the fact that the US was the reserve currency issuer and had a much more diversified economy. So I began thinking about it in more nuanced terms, but the thing that seemed clear to me is that it it would be good for assets. And so I I started off by owning gold. I started off by going from being in all cash where I had been since October 07 to going all in on, on equities. Um, and and went there. Now the next step from there to me was Okay, historically, the way the system has worked since the early 1970s is that part of the reason the U.S. dollar has the reserve status that it does is because oil in particular uh, and commodities more broadly are priced solely in dollars. And to me, there was just this splinter in my brain that it, it just didn't make sense to me that the uh, the most important commodity in the world, uh, oil, could still be priced or maintain sort of the same pricing as it had always had in a currency that was just being printed and then spent the way uh, the way it was happening. And so I, I began to think that it, it just didn't make sense to me that that would happen. And so there needed to be some other pricing mechanism. And then from there, so I started with gold. At any rate, when I started hearing about Bitcoin, which was probably about 2010, 2009, 2010. Um, I didn't know where to buy it. I was intrigued by it, but it just seemed to be blunt, just too, too painful, too faddish. I didn't understand the technology. I, I think a lot of people, like a lot of people at that time, But I was intrigued by the concept that implied in what Bitcoin was doing with the difficulty adjustment and with the basically swapping electricity costs for uh, a hard store of value. It was solving for this this splinter in my brain, which was it made no sense that the U.S. could could print dollars and get finite oil for that. And, and so it was always interesting to me. Uh, I finally bought some Bitcoin in 2013 when uh, I think it was right around then the coinbase maybe a little before came up and I had a friend say, hey, you can buy it here. Uh, I, I bought Bitcoin for the first time in 2013. I'd love to say that I, I bought a whole ton of it and went all in, but that is <laughs> just not the case. <laughs> I think everybody says that these days. Uh, but that's, that was really the journey to me was really around what the US was doing as a result of this crisis Crisis. And then the, the energy connection in terms of it just didn't make sense to me that the U.S. could just print money out of thin air and still maintain the or retain the ability to uh, have oil only priced in dollars and and then the implication that that ha- had or or how that relayed back to Bitcoin with the energy connection as I saw it.
0: So in those days in 2013, it was a big thing around this whole idea of merchant adoption. So it was this idea that oh we're all just going to be using Bitcoin for day to day transactions. Now, that was one big narrative at the time, but also there were people thinking now the I guess it wasn't as well advanced and uh, put out. But this idea of Bitcoin as a long term savings or Bitcoin as a store of value was also there. So I presume that was also your thinking about it, that you were thinking more store of value.
1: I was. I thought I was thinking of it that way all along. I had done uh, a lot of work and reading around Triffin's dilemma, which was uh, an economist, Robert Triffin, laid out that basically if you had a Currency system where the reserve currency was and an, the reserve currency was the uh, uh, was was the the currency of a single sovereign and that system required that sovereign to run increasing deficits to supply the world with that currency. Then the dilemma is that sooner or later the solvency of that issuer is going to be called into question and create a problem for the system and. So if my thought was we had reached the, the Triffin's dilemma moment, and it was—it's particularly a problem with the system as it's been structured since structured since the late seventies, uh, due to the Treasury bond being the primary. Global reserve asset. And so once you got that to 0% interest rates, it, you can't really appreciate uh, that bond, can't really appreciate nominally that much more. Um, and so to me, the fix has always been separating uh, the fix to the global currency, has always been separating the primary global reserve currency from the primary global wealth reserve asset. In other words, basically finding some neutral reserve asset to replace treasuries. And I had always been working under the assumption that it was gold. But when I saw Bitcoin, to me, it was something that made sense from a personal standpoint. Of hey, I, I own gold. I'm going to buy some Bitcoin too because this could be this. This speaks to me as a a wealth reserve asset, a neutral wealth reserve asset that floats in price for the individual. Um, but like I said, it, <laughs> and I know now what I would knew what uh, uh, known that what I know now, uh, I would have liked to have been much bigger in it. Uh, but that's that was I never I never saw them case for it as as an individual currency. I saw it more as a store of value.
0: Gotcha. And so I guess fast forward to today, January 2021. Are you seeing it more like Bitcoin could be the reserve asset and that we, you know, society just broadly speaking, would use something else as the day to day transactional currency? Or how are you viewing that?
1: I still view it that way. Um, I still view it that way, partly because... I think that the sovereigns are going to want to retain uh, the ability to respond quickly in crises, whether that is the COVID crisis, for example. They have the ability to quickly uh, marshal resources because they can print up fiat currency and spend them, as opposed to if it was more uh, Bitcoin-based, they wouldn't be able to print the Bitcoin uh, to do that. It would be uh, a bit more challenging, particularly given the implications, for example of a of a response to a of a, of a, of a, of a pandemic crisis where if it's true that as some say that ultimately the the productivity of the globe backs bitcoin, then something like a pandemic, if you were using Bitcoin for both your currency and your store of value, the the pandemic would severely impact the productive value or the production of the of the globe and then you would be in this sort of deflationary spiral so to me having the fiat currency separate which gives the government the flexibility but then having a neutral reserve asset floating in price to basically it's the best of both worlds it gives the sovereign the flexibility to do what it wants to do in terms of its domestic political agenda but then you also still have a system with a neutral reserve asset that floats in price in all currencies that protects savers from, uh, from confiscation by inflation, effectively. And so that's, that's how I still think about it. I, I think two, three years ago, of course, to, to even have the discussion... Of could it be a global wealth reserve asset or sit on sovereign balance sheets? I think probably you, you know we would have been laughed out of the room. But I think all of a sudden, as it's gotten closer to a trillion dollars in market cap, if you will, that's suddenly a discussion that starts to need to happen. And I think I think it makes sense uh, that it that it could. I think it is something that could serve that role very well. It's ultimately a political question of sorts, but I think you can make the case there are sovereigns that actually would prefer that to gold. And that's so it's going to be an interesting discussion to to see going forward.
0: Right. And I suppose so for me, I would see it like I think, OK, so first of all, I guess separating what I would want to happen and what I think ideologically should happen. Right. I, I want the government to be smaller or zero if possible. But recognizing, as you said, that politically that you know, governments will want some level of control. Control and typically they want to be able to stimulate and they want to be able to say, look, we did this and we helped fix it or we helped you know, correct the imbalance. And so I guess to that extent, they would still want to have some form of fiat money and some level of control into how people are transacting and spending and so on. So I suppose the question then is, is that really more like a shorter to medium term thing? And as t- over time, more and more people will literally just be holding Bitcoin and they'll see the number going up. on one side of holding Bitcoin, and then they might eventually try to transition more and more of it over into the Bitcoin economy, even from a transactional point of view, not purely a store of value point of view.
1: I think that's a very. I think it's a possibility when you start thinking about it, and, and I think it was a conversation that you and I had on on Twitter, where I had when we started that conversation, I felt much more strongly about that separation of 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 medium of exchange and store of value was the solution. But the more you and I interacted on it on Twitter, the more I could see clear to what I think is the point you're making, which is the there's the more the government spends, the more there's going to be the more deficits. run, the more there is an incentive, the more the price of Bitcoin is going to rise and the more incentive there is, like you said, to basically to to save in Bitcoin and and not to save in you know, not to store any wealth in government fiat or the paper associated with it. And that feeds on itself. And that's, I hadn't really thought of how that feeds on itself, but but it does. I mean, it's almost a little bit like, like Bitcoin in that case is almost like uh, the, the, the the punctures in the hull of the Titanic, right? In the, in the movie 25 years ago, God, I'm dating myself now. But in, in, <laughs> in that movie, if you remember, the iceberg just punched like little morse cold holes in the hull and it just filled up a little bit of the front. And then it went in and because none of the airtight, airtight parts in the hold were kept, it just flowed over the first wall and then into the second and then over the second into the third. And it, and it went faster and faster and faster. And the same kind of thing would happen there unless the government basically reigned in their deficit spending. And so to your point, the, having the separation of the two uh, medium of exchange and government fiat and Bitcoin as, uh, as a floating store of value would still ultimately Enforce discipline the government because what would happen if they refused to bring their spending under control would be a run into Bitcoin. And the more that ran into Bitcoin, the more the central bank would have to print to fund the government, which more would run into Bitcoin. And it would, as uh, numerous times, is, is these things don't go linearly, they'll go very non linearly. So that is something I, I think I, I've, you know, in as a result, in no small part of our interaction a month or so ago, I've thought a lot about and I've wrestled with. And I don't know, I don't know the the right answer, other than Bitcoin, really is it ends up serving as as the, the smoke alarm that they can't disable, that they being policymakers uh, can't disable uh, as they have with others. Um, because the way for them to the way for them to disable it is pretty simple mechanically. It's it's don't run really big deficits and and raise interest rates enough so that I'm more interested in holding their government debt than I am in Bitcoin. Um, the challenges is given the promises that they've made, et cetera, et cetera, that result, what they would have to cut and how much they'd have to raise rates and what that would do to the economy isn't politically um, unpalatable at the very least and impossible more likely.
0: Yeah, very interesting. And so, yeah, this interesting characterization of Bitcoin as smoke alarm, I like that idea. Uh, And so I guess your earlier characterization where you were saying, okay, it could potentially be like a, you know, Bitcoin is recreating the Hunger Games. Do you still see that idea or maybe, maybe, maybe one way to think of that idea might be if a transition happens too quickly, that maybe that could be bad for society. What, what's your view on that whole idea?
1: Yeah, that's when, when we were talking about that, we were talking about using Bitcoin as both medium of exchange and store of value. And and I think if it happened too fast, I, I, what I said was it would lead to a global, basically a global hunger games where either you add enough value to earn, earn it or you starve. And uh, given If if it happened over too compressed a time frame, the political ramifications of that uh, would be extraordinarily – they'd be very painful. It would be basically um, a hyperinflation of sorts with no government help coming, right? So – um in terms of food assistance in terms of etc so that that's when i when i said that that's the thought i had had in terms of if you if again if the government does not have the flexibility to act it has to come up with the bitcoin now i suppose you could tax they could tax the bitcoin etc but that gets into you you have to have you it would have to be uniform across nations etc uh, and so to me it's more a, if you had a merging of, of of Bitcoin as fiat currency and store of value, medium of exchange and store of value, I shouldn't say fiat currency, but if Bitcoin served as both medium of exchange and store of value, and if it happened too fast, then I think you would really get into this, um, it, it would really uh, reduce the flexibility of governments to, in the short run, address some of the more vulnerable portions of society, and that would be very politically, it would have some pretty severe political ramifications. Now, I, I just, from earlier, I think, it's it's unlikely that we'll get. I, I still think it's mo- the most likely scenario is a store of medium exchange remains fiat currency and, and Bitcoin continues gaining share as a store of value. But you know, to your point, uh, there is a scenario where organically that that can happen pretty fast.
0: Right, and I think the way most people are thinking about it. I mean, once they've kind of been in the Bitcoin space for long enough, they treat it like I want to hold on to the Bitcoin. And if I get fiat money, I will preferentially spend that fiat. And so I guess what happens over time, and this is we don't know when, but this is kind of the whole cyclical nature of Bitcoin as well. And some of this comes into the whole, you know, four year cycles idea. And maybe that kind of really extreme transition is really only going to happen at the quote unquote final cycle, like a discussion I had with Preston a little while ago. So I guess one way... Way to think about it is how should we anticipate a quote unquote deflationary spiral to look like because i think one way to appraise that and assess that is to think that well hold on the productive materials of society still exist right like the office buildings and the computers and the printers and the factories and the tractors and so on these things still exist it's just a question of who owns what and then repurposing those things into being productive machinery and things that are used to produce food and etc et so I, I guess that for me is how I'm thinking about the so-called deflationary spiral. But what, what's your view on what that might look like if it were to happen, kind of in a quick, I guess, quick way?
1: I would think it'd have to be an externality, like the COVID crisis. If you're if you're talking about just in a in a Bitcoin world, in a, where Bitcoin is medium of exchange and store of value, is that what you mean? Yes. Yeah, I would think it would have to be in a, a scenario where uh, you know, pandemic, um, war, something like that. And war gets very expensive with uh (laughs) if you have to pay for it in Bitcoin, Um, right? Um, But I would think the biggest one would be some sort of pandemic. And I wouldn't have even thought of it until a year ago. Uh, But I had a conversation actually with Preston and, and Lynn not that long ago. And it was... When you talk about it, because you're right, it, it, the, the productive capacity is there. It's just a question of who owns it. The risk is then is the productive capacity gets haircut by 50% because everyone has to stay home indefinitely. And now all of a sudden you're into sort of this deflationary, um, this deflationary spiral where we, we, we can take a real live example. We, we start doing shutdowns. We leave the markets open and we could see what happened, right? Bitcoin went to 3,400, stocks went down and down and down, gold went down, everything went down except the dollar. And what we were telling clients at the time is, look, the, the, the financial system with the leverage involved, with everything involved, is uniquely unsuited to a, to a pandemic, which is to say, we said you can't shut down economies and keep markets open because the world runs short dollars naturally and it will sell everything to uh, accomplish that. And so it's to the to the extent that you had this drawdown of materials, uh, if you substitute Bitcoin for dollars uh, in that scenario, if everything was running on an equity-based system where everyone had Bitcoin, then everybody needs, you see a deflation in Bitcoin terms as you see a breakdown in global supply chains. And that, that would be a deflationary in Bitcoin terms scenario if Bitcoin was both medium exchange and store of value. Now, these pandemics only come around a <laughs> Oh! <laughs> Not that often, thank goodness. Uh, uh, it's it's maybe uh, um, it's it's maybe a one-off tail risk thing. So I don't know how much time we need to devote to it. But that would that's the type of it would have to be an, a physical world interruption, um, something like that, or something like uh, some sort of giant, uh, you know, the one of the one of the uh, um, oh heck the uh, the rays from the uh, from the sun that periodically can come and in theory wipe out big parts of the electrical grid. Something like that, where it's a physical interruption would be deflationary instead of some sort of market event. If that makes sense that's
0: Right. I see. I get you. Yeah. Yeah. So I guess it's also about, you know, how does society adjust to that? And look, I think no matter what monetary standard the society is living under, it's, you know, that those kinds of things can cause a shock and they can cause an issue to the market, whether, you know, whether we're using US dollars or over on the Bitcoin standard. So um, I think that's one point there. Um, I'm also curious. Uh, so my friend, Safety Inamusu, um, you might've read the Bitcoin standard. Uh, one view that I've seen him share is, is this idea that if we consider the world as it is today with the fractional reserve banking system as new loans are created that's the creation of new money Um, So safety interview is actually one view I've seen input is this idea that because Bitcoin is more like an equity based system, more people might just not they might just save into Bitcoin and it might become more of an equity based system. And in some way, it might slow the creation of new loans, which in turn slows the creation of new money. So I'm wondering whether that might actually create less demand for holding dollars because there's less demand for borrowing dollars. What's your uh, reaction on that idea? I would think
1: I would think there'd be less demand for, for for dollars is the as Bitcoin gets bigger um it it ultimately is such a hard currency it resembles a gold standard in a way where historically the governing mechanism of the gold standard right was um, when the sovereign is being irresponsible in terms of deficits uh, you show up and you demand gold and the way the sovereign gets the gold back uh, and for 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 many decades centuries excuse me that was the the bank of England would raise rates so if the UK went to, uh, had a big expensive war, and there were concerns about the, the the pound. So people would would go to this go to banks, take gold out. That gold would flow away from London, and then uh, in order to control that, the, the the Bank of England would have to tighten policy, raise rates, uh, and make sterling more attractive than gold relative to whatever what was happening uh, in the world, and basically call that gold in by raising rates, by strangling the economy, by putting yeah. things into a deflation. And it's kind of similar here, where you're seeing the run into Bitcoin happen in real time. I don't think anyone can argue that that isn't happening. And the reason that's happening is that the fiscal situation of the reserve currency issuer, the U.S. and and, and Western sovereigns more broadly, uh, is a mess. And they're paying. Uh, I mean, the way I've looked at it is, the last twelve years, the 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 growth of U.S. federal debt has risen by between nine and ten percent. Kager, maybe it's eight to ten percent. Kager. Um, uh, and the coupon on that—that's never been more than three percent at the long end—and so you're uh, the the money supply, if you will, the the supply of debt out there is growing anywhere from 500 to 800 basis points faster. And the coupon on that is right. So you're you're uh, in in on one measure, it's a significantly negative real rate relative to the issuance of, of that. And so the the fact that there is a release valve, that Bitcoin is a release valve that can't be manipulated, I think is doing exactly what, what Safe Dean said, which is it's it, it for it's it's like a gold standard, right? The way that this has been that why gold hasn't worked is is the gold has been managed by allowing unallocated paper derivatives to expand as fast or faster than the debt and the money supplies. So if you have paper claims rise on gold and, and because gold centralized uh, and most people won't take physical delivery, uh, you can control the price of gold. So the smoke detector of gold has been managed by uh, policymakers in this way, and that's allowed them to expand the money supply more than they otherwise would have if these paper derivatives didn't exist in gold. If, if the unallocated paper claims didn't exist and weren't able to expand uh, as, as rapidly as they've been allowed to expand, Bitcoin doesn't have that. And so what Bitcoin's price is doing is it's just how telling us what's happening. Uh, and there's, I think, a catch-up aspect to it, and I think there's a momentum-chasing aspect to it. and I, all. But I, on the underlying fundamentals, I think, are this escape out of fiat currency, whose supply is growing well in excess of the interest rate that people are being paid to hold it. And the governmental officials can stop that anytime they want. All they have to do is really ratchet back spending and or really ratchet up rates, right? So it's basically running the old bank, what the Bank of England used to do to, to bring the gold back is really all policymakers, and in particular, the U.S. have to do to bring Bitcoin back in. The challenge is is that the, the political implications of slashing spending, um, the, the 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 market implications of raising rates enough to do that, I think are at a point where they couldn't do that without forcing the U.S. to default on its own debt, which means they can't do that without, you know, and they're not going to default nominally. But what I'm saying is, is that basically they wouldn't be able to pay the interest or pay the entitlements on a pay-as-you-go basis without help from the Fed, which, then gets us right back to the point that they can't they can't do it. So I, I think the way you describe you know, the way he's describing that basically Bitcoin is serving as a as a very hard gold standard. And I think up for most of its life to date, it's been primarily, you know, sort of cypherpunks and, and you know, a few gold bugs and, you know, People like myself who owned a little bit, and I think it's really changed the tenor of what Bitcoin is doing. Has really changed in the last nine months. I think, in no small part, to how the crisis evolved with the U.S. back in, and and, and globally with COVID and the implications it had for the U.S. fiscal situation since March. So I think it's really when now you're seeing corporations looking at it for treasury, you're seeing institutional interest. It's it's become much more of a mainstream asset, which is uh, I think that's I think the reason for that is exactly for what the, the reasons you
0: described. Back to the show in a moment. Lend at HodlHodl is a global Bitcoin-backed lending platform, so you can lend or borrow anonymously on your own terms. This is a peer-to-peer solution using multi-signature escrow for every deal. You can grow your savings and earn returns on your investment, so if you have stablecoins lying around, you can create an offer and earn interest by lending. On the other hand, if you're a Bitcoiner and you hold Bitcoins but you don't want to spend them now, you can borrow against them so you can borrow stablecoins and keep on hodling. So with HODLHODL's Lend platform, set your own terms and put up offers depending on how long you want to borrow or lend and interest rates. Go to Lend.HODLHODL.com Knox is a Bitcoin custodian dedicated to ensuring comprehensive insurance coverage for client assets. Much of what passes as insurance today isn't purchased for the sake of protection, but for pure marketing reasons. Knox believes insurance should exist to make fund recovery possible. No sharing coverage between customers. Knox takes a unique approach when it comes to purchasing insurance for customer assets. Coverage is set aside exclusively for every customer in a one-to-one capacity, all with a comprehensive policy covering a range of losses and theft events including internal collusion if you are a bitcoin company ria fund trust or family office make sure to contact knox to discuss bitcoin custody and insurance back to the show yeah, really uh, great explanations there. And I think we could summarize uh, in terms of the US government situation there. It's kind of like either the Fed has to keep printing or the world defaults, right?
1: That's basically it. Like If you said, Luke, I want you I want you to stop Bitcoin. I, if I was, Luke, I want you to stop this, how would you do it? And the first way I would do it would be to attempt to roll out a cash settled uh, futures exchange on Bitcoin. And obviously they tried to do that and it, the future still exists, but it just is that it is not the same as a cash settled futures uh, on on Bitcoin. And, and that's part of it. Then you would also need an unallocated Bitcoin market where, and that's the real issue for gold, which is you can go to London and say, I want to buy $100 million in gold. They say done. And now you don't own $100 million in gold. You own $100 million in gold credit. And as long as you don't try to get that gold, it's fine. Uh, I, I was told recently that there are uh, major investors looking to buy $100 million in physical gold, and it's taken two months to solve source at least. So physical gold supplies are extremely tight still. Uh, it's still hard to source physical gold. It's very easy to source paper gold. But that's partly this the the, the speaks to the centralization weak point of gold relative to Bitcoin than a number of the uh Bitcoin uh, uh proponents have talked about which is because gold's centralized they this this can be done. Bitcoin's not centralized and so you and because of that it's it's easier to buy quote unquote physical Bitcoin, right? I can I can buy I can buy Bitcoin on my phone much easier than I can buy physical gold um, anytime I, I want to do that. And 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 more importantly, it's much easier for me to buy physical Bitcoin, if you will, than it is to buy Bitcoin futures. And so because of that, this cash settled futures and the unallocated gold expansion, it doesn't work. So step one would be to try to try to recreate the, the paper, the unallocated paper markets that exist around gold that help control gold's price. And thus far, because of the decentralization of Bitcoin, it's been very difficult to do. It hasn't worked. So step two for me, if I, was, if I was tasked with controlling Bitcoin, would be I would revalue gold enormously that sits on government balance sheets, take gold to $50,000 an ounce in the U.S., use the proceeds that we're doing that in the United States would uh, deposit by virtue of the calculation, it would deposit about $12 trillion into the general account of the U.S. Treasury. And they could then spend that money however they saw fit, uh, whether they wanted to just go out and buy back $12 trillion of debt outright they could do that. Uh, they could turn around and spend it into the economy, get some sort of multiplier effect on infrastructure. The point is that they could use it to massively delever the government's balance sheet. Because remember what I said before, the reason the government can't raise rates and sort of call the Bitcoin back in, if you will, is because calling it, they can't raise rates without bankrupting the government. They, 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 the US government would not have the tax revenues to pay the interest on the debt without the Fed's help. So in theory, if you delevered the government's balance sheet enough by revaluing, the gold, then the Fed could raise rates enough to bring the Bitcoin back in without bankrupting the government. Now, the devaluation of the dollar against gold would likely be massively bullish for Bitcoin at the same time. Uh, and so there'd be sort of Bitcoin up huge, gold up huge, uh, but then the government would be able to take rates up to 7 or 10 or 12% or whatever they needed to do to sort of bring the Bitcoin back in. And at th- that point, Bitcoiners, gold holders, et cetera, would have to decide, do I want to continue to hold my, my Bitcoin uh, and my gold? gold or do i want to own the 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 sovereign debt of the United States of America who has zero debt effectively or much lower debt effectively uh, and is going to pay me 10 or 12% per year and that's a different discussion than i've got than, than the discussion today regarding our fiscal situation the 0% yielding debt negative real rates relative to gold and bitcoin so i that's i think sort of the discussion um, when you sort of think about okay, hey, what what would you do to bring it back in? But until you do one of those two things, yeah, they're 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 in a tough spot where they can't they being the United States government can't make whole, they, they can't make their they 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 can't they can't make their obligations nominally money good without help from the Fed, basically if they raise rates.
0: Yeah, so interesting thoughts there. Uh, I guess my first reaction with the idea of the gold revaluation is that it's effectively like trying to. To play an accounting trick uh, to try, like, because it's not that the US magically would have more productive resources all of a sudden. It's just kind of revaluing and saying, oh, well, actually, all this gold we have, we're just going to treat it as though it's worth more than what it was before. And so I guess that's probably, I don't know how easily that would fly uh, amongst the international community. I mean, potentially, uh, I guess if there's enough kind of sense of power for coming, being projected by the US government. Um, and I guess the other point I just, I guess I'm curious what your thoughts are is on this. Idea of trying to raise the interest rate to, I guess, give people more incentive to hold U.S. government debt. The problem I could see, or one problem I could see, is that Bitcoin returns have, I mean, if you look at, you know, over the last ten years or so, it's something like 200% return per year annualized. So it's almost like they would have to bring the reserve, the interest rates, so high that it would just be crazy. Uh, So I guess, but I guess the point you were saying is that they would have, it would have already gone up a lot as a result of this and so maybe at that point they could try to you know encourage people to hold US government debt is that how you're thinking about it or how are you thinking about that
1: no I, and I, I I can't remember it was it was Dean's book that that made that point that when you look at the the return the the amount of, of the, the, the interest rate that would have to be paid on sovereign debt to make that competitive I don't know if it has to go to par but the, the point stands right I don't know if it's 200 percent or if it's hundred it's 20 I don't know what That number is, but it's it's very high. It's not three. It's not five percent. All yeah, right. Yeah, exactly. some of that would depend on the fiscal situation. Some of that would depend on you know. Again, is it a gimmicky and wonkish in terms of that gold revaluation? Absolutely. That said, it's no less gimmicky than what we did to the world in 1971 when we said, yeah, we're going to back it in gold at 35, and then one day President Nixon got on TV and and said, hey, kidding, it's your problem now, right? I mean, <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, uh, and it's no different than what FDR did in 1933, right? Which was, hey, you know, it was 20 yesterday, 35 today. Have a good day. Right. So um, <laughs> it, it, it's we've done these things before and it's just been a long time. And so people think we won't do it again. I mean, it was, you know, we did it in 2002. Hey, Iraq has weapons of mass destructions and you're all either with us or against us. Um, and so it is gimmicky. It is wonkish. Um, it would work uh, to devalue the balance sheet. And then it, if you delever the balance sheet, you're also, by the way, going to be having an economy that is absolutely soaring in dollar terms. Right. Uh, because of the, the inflationary, you know, the dollar, will be falling sharply, you'll have inflation, Um, you'll be you would economic growth would absolutely rip. So it would be um, it would effectively amount to a reset. And it would you'd basically you would you would have to raise rates to a really significant level. And so the question would be what what would I as a Bitcoin holder say that would take Bitcoin to I don't know, it's at whatever 35,000 today, after they take gold to 50,000, let's say Bitcoin goes to 500,000 at $500,000 with the US government. Balance sheet, you know, largely delevered. Would I want to have my Bitcoin holdings making twelve percent in the U.S. government? Maybe. Is it fifteen percent? Is it eight percent? It's probably not below. You know, that's a question. You that's that's sort of the calculus, and I don't know what the right rate would be. But it it really that's really the calculus so that basically of 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 what Bitcoin as global gold standard would require is basically sort of that, and particularly oh by the way, if the U.S. is no longer Longer running deficits in any real way, right? If this in the aftermath of all of this, the answer is is yeah, the U.S. is running a balanced budget. Its debt to GDP is twenty percent, and we're paying twelve percent interest right now. Um, what do you want to do? Boy, that's a really productive economy making twelve percent. I'd be tempted, right? You know. Um, so that's that's the calculus, and I don't know what the right number is because again, I I agree with your point that when you look at the two hundred percent per year, would I sell all of it for government bonds? No, but would I sell some of it? Probably.
0: Nice. Maybe. Maybe enough to sustain the uh, government debt market. But I mean, look, we're, we're talking like, obviously, Bitcoin today is very small. It is what, $600 billion as a total market where other markets are just dwarfing that. So I, I guess, and I know you'll have some interesting things to say on this, is that the with the US fiscal situation and the way the government bond markets are, it, it really does boggle the mind why people are holding these things. Now, the explanations I've heard, are probably three main ones. One of them is greater for theory, right? It's this idea that I'm just going to buy it and sell it on to somebody else and that's it. Uh, Secondly, uh, you know, there's this idea of the collateral and the safety implications of holding US Treasuries or other near money rather than cash in the banks itself because of the safety perspective. And then I guess thirdly, you could also say maybe there's a regulatory reason. It might be um, Basel standards that mandate holding some level of government bonds and that's why these big uh, investing uh, entities are holding government bonds. Bonds. I, from your perspective, how would you explain that? Why do people hold these bonds that are literally paying out negative?
1: I think it's a combination of the regulatory side where you're incented to hold them or, or mandated to hold them. I think there's the uh, the derivative and 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 uh, collateral side where they can be levered up uh, as you know you hold them as collateral and they can effectively be levered up to buy other things. They need to be held for for derivative positions as, as collateral. So I think you know, that sort of falls back into the regulatory side. I think. Uh, uh, another big part of it is really portion of the industry or holdings that are uh, duration matching which is to the ex- you know to the extent you have liabilities you don't care what you are uh, earning nominally you are just trying to match as close as possible uh your 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 cash flows with those liabilities and so when you're talking about insurance companies and certain uh uh fixed uh fixed pensions etc it's it's all about matching liabilities and so i think it's a combination of of those things and I think too it's it's central banks I think it's 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 policy um uh, which people tend to leave out because I think it's the, all those prior are are, are are very important regulatory and collateral and and, and dura- liability matching but you look the feds the fed's grown their balance sheet by 3.7 trillion dollars in the last 18 months last 15 months what would the yield be if they didn't step in you know we saw a brief glimpse of what the yield what could happen to the yield in September 2019 when repo rates spiked to eight to ten percent and the Fed jumped on that immediately within 48 hours, began growing their balance sheet again to bring those back under control. And so I, I think some portion of the answer is rates are where they are because that's where governments can afford to keep the wheels on the cart. They can afford all of their fiscal obligations without interest expense spiraling up to uh, an a, a ever-growing portion of ever-declining tax revenues as rates rise. And so it's the release valve is, uh, the release valve can always be either rates rise. Rising or central bank balance sheets rising, and the answer cannot be rates rising. And so it's it's been foreign central bank ownership of government, and increasingly in the last several years, corporate debt markets, mortgage markets, and and I think that's ultimately uh, really when you talk about what the marginal what the marginal bid is doing. Uh, every time they've needed a marginal bid, this, the central banks have been there, and that ultimately ties back to I think why Bitcoin has done what it's done is I think it is it is becoming I think 2020 in particular made it very obvious that when when the Treasury market sold off sharply in, in March, it started crashing alongside the stock market. I think was a very big eye-opening moment to a lot of investors around the world, where they suddenly realized that oh my gosh, in, in the next deflationary crisis, in this deflationary crisis, that the safe haven is crashing alongside stock. Okay, they are not going to let that happen. Well, then that means, boy, that means the central bank balance sheets are going to have to arise a lot more than we think. And okay, I need something that 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 hedges that, that basically does well when central bank balance sheets are rising, and that's that's Bitcoin, that's gold. So I think that that's that's really the dynamic driving.
0: It. So I guess we could. Say then as more and more people wake up to this dynamic there'll just be more and more people running for the heading for the hills and buying gold and bitcoin i,
1: I think it is i really do it's I I think it was very eye opening to people in terms of just what happened with, in particular, the U.S. Treasury market back in March.
0: Very interesting. Um, I also wanted to get your thoughts around, you know, state control of money. So it's you know AML regulation and so on. I know you were just recently commenting about uh, Lloyd Blankfein. So he was the former CEO of uh, Goldman Sachs. What was your view on uh, what he was saying about uh, government control of money?
1: You know, I just thought it was really interesting. How in over the last you know, since Nixon closed the gold window, we've moved to this 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 period over the last 50 years where because it's happened little by little, we've all sort of been the frogs that have gotten boiled about the uh, the normalization of complete state and government control over sort of every aspect of financial privacy. And I, I understand the need for KYC, AML, these kinds of things. It just was fascinating to the degree to which uh, they are painting. The uh, painting Bitcoin with that brush, because the reality is, is, is. I mean, at least for me, I, my Coinbase account. spent 25 years in, in investment uh, research and uh, and sales, I had all the compliance KYC AML stuff ramped up in compliance after 2001, uh, one, of course. And to open Coinbase and and participate in Bitcoin markets in the United States, there's very rigorous KYC and AML compliance measures in place. And so for me, what Blankfein was talking about today on CNBC, I just it was really twofold it was number one the focus on Bitcoin as it relates to kyc AML when those measures are already in place to me smacks it seems a bit disingenuous it feels like they don't like the message of what bitcoin's price is telling them and so they're trying to beat it over the head with the kyc AML club and I and then the, from a bigger picture perspective it's just interesting to me to see the CEO of a broker a former CEO of arguably one of if not the most important systemic brokerage firm out there effectively sounding like a like a, a you know, a, a CCP apparatchik, right? In terms of just, hey, we need to make sure the state has control over the money and over the, you know, so we know where all the money's flowing and all this stuff. And it is, to me, it, it is. I mean, it's it's the very antithesis of sort of, where, sort of where we started this process fifty or sixty years ago, where there was um, it was much more capitalism from 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 the ground up as opposed to from the state down. So it just it just struck me just hearing him say that more than anything else.
0: Yeah, we've just seen this continual erosion of people's any any possibility. Of having financial privacy. Uh, and it seems to me that people have just overwhelmingly accepted, oh, this massive amount of control, this massive amount of intrusion, and asking about, oh, hey, where did you get this money? What is the ultimate beneficiary? or this, etc., etc. stuff that they'll ask you. But it just seems like everything is becoming KYC, bureaucracy, papers, please.
1: It, it, yeah, for me, it's a little and, and and to be clear, I'm not against KYC or AML, but I look at a system where when I it always left me me scratching my head, right? So if you go back and you can find the story online from 2011, 2012, there was a U.S. bank that was uh, reported to U.S. authorities for years by an internal whistleblower. Authorities didn't do anything. It was Wachovia. And at any rate, they had, they, they laundered like $360 billion with a B for a number of different elements. And it, finally, it took like six or seven years to get anything done. And around the same time, they were able to uh, basically politically discredit one of our politicians, uh, Elliot Spitzer. A uh, New York politician by finding that he had passed a three thousand dollar check to a prostitute, and I just always wondered how they couldn't find three hundred sixty billion dollars in, in in laundered money, uh, but they were able to find three thousand dollar check from a politician to a prostitute as quickly as they were. And what it speaks to me is that it's that it it, it runs the risk of being unevenly or politically applied, uh, which is not the spirit of of the Constitution, etc. I'm all for KYC AML, but I also, as a sovereign person, with a finite lifespan on this earth, I don't want I want to have the ability to protect my savings um, from what I have earned throughout my life to this point from confiscation by inflation or currency collapse as a result of bad decisions that I really didn't have a vote on. And those decisions range from, you know, entitlement programs approved before I was born to wars fought before I was born to wars fought when I was born in which I (laughs) which which I thought probably didn't make sense and have clearly in hindsight not made sense ultimately that's where i for me where i, re- I really get caught up which is listen I, i'm happy to tell you where i got the money from because it's not coming from an illegal place and i understand your need to protect your citizens and that's a role of government however i don't want those those protections to morph into an excuse for not giving me the avenue to protect my uh the efforts that i've put in my life date for my family for my kids for productive investment for this country and uh, in terms of uh, bottoms-up capitalism, like we were talking about before, as opposed to state-down directed investment. So that's how I, I how I come at it is is, is less a full. I, you know, I'm not a full-on libertarian. Hey, don't you know? I don't want any. I understand they need to protect citizens and 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 uh, they need to do some of the KYC AML. But I just don't want that to be used against that that lens to be used or that hat to be used to try to stop me from protecting the the real value of the the work and the time. Uh, the percentage of my life that I've expended uh, so far.
0: Right and I think I can appreciate that view I would say even even considering just the AML regulation I think there there was actually a recent study showing that uh, very few actual cases of AML get discovered because of all the AML compliance so the net result is just that all the banks and financial institutions and all of us who have to deal with the compliance burden basically end up we just we're just paying this huge cost and all this reporting goes into the government you know in in the US it's FinCEN in Australia it's AUSTRAC and the, so basically the AML regulator, all this reporting goes into them and even sanctions as well. So now we're talking OFAC, all this reporting just kind of goes into them. And, and at the end of the day, you know, criminals still end up using the system and manage to slip through the cracks anyway, because they find other things, they find other ways to do it. So it's just, it just seems like a very ineffective system, even at even taking them on their own terms at, at solving their own stated purpose. So it just seems a very odd and uh, unusual system in that regard to me
1: yeah it's, it's a fair point I mean you given the amounts you've got to be able to see given given the sensitivity of the system in terms of the ability to track flows where you can you can see they were able to track this flow or that flow it just raises questions about some of the flows that are missed I guess
0: yeah exactly um so look I think we're sort of coming to the end of time but I guess uh, if you've got any thoughts for listeners in terms of you know outlook over the next year or so in terms of Bitcoin or even just kind of you know uh, macro in general if you've got any thoughts to leave for the listeners
1: yeah I really come at Bitcoin more from the macro side uh, than the technologist side. And for me, it really comes down to what's the next marginal step for for the United States, because the United States is a reserve currency issuer. And so we saw this the the U.S. fiscal position as a result of the COVID crisis really became uh, what I would call irrecoverable, which is to say the way we've defined it. If you look at the U.S.'s big three expenditures, it's defense, entitlements, and and interest expense slash treasury spending, and those big three are 140 percent of tax receipts uh, as of the third quarter of 2020 as a result of the COVID crisis. And so you really it, it's very difficult for the U.S. to raise rates, tighten, basically operate without ongoing. Fed support. And so to me, it really comes down to what is the marginal level of Fed support going forward relative to the amount of stimulus out there going forward, relative to the amount of treasury issuance going forward. Because if treasury issuance ramps, but the Fed's balance sheet does not, the Fed doesn't effectively monetize it dollar for dollar or more than dollar for dollar like they did in 2020, then you're talking about the United States beginning to effectively suck dollar liquidity out of the world. And that's going to be, a tough macro environment. That's not going to be a great macro environment. Uh, I think you'll start to see the dollar rise. I think you'll start to see cracks emerging in the weakest emerging markets. So I'd start with the Argentinas and the Turkeys of the world. And before long, I think you would start to see it show up in the price of gold and Bitcoin and eventually in more broad risk assets. And eventually the Fed's going to have to come back and do a lot more in our view. But that to me is the one thing I'm really paying most attention to on the macro side is, is basically, is the Fed going to effectively monetize enough of what the U.S. spends and, and issues in terms of treasuries. Because if they don't, it's going to be a little like the first half of 2018 where um, you saw this dollar strength, you saw Bitcoin weakness, you saw assets flow to the United States. The U.S. stock market did well for a while. Dollar did well. Gold sort of floundered. And then fourth quarter of 18, of course, uh, the wheels came off the cart and uh, the Fed had to reverse course. And that took us into 2019 and 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 sort of the re-expansion of the Fed's balance sheet. And I think that whole playbook, if the the fed doesn't do enough would would happen much faster this time around so then it took call it from the time the us started sort of tightening a little bit the uh, it would take uh, it took 4 to 5 maybe 6 months for basically us markets to blow up and force the fed to reverse course i think it would happen a lot faster this time but i think that's sort of the one big macro question at this point that is still unclear because there's a number of different moving parts there's the us has a big treasury general account it can spend policies of the Biden administration are still pretty unclear. Janet Yellen seems to be talking out of both sides of her mouth as it relates to what Treasury is going to do. Powell, kind of a little bit of the same in terms of what Fed will do. So we're in a little bit of a holding pattern. You can kind of see that reflected in markets, but that's the thing I'm really watching for most closely.
0: Excellent. And Luke, before we let you go, uh, make sure you tell the li- tell the listeners where they can find you online.
1: Absolutely. So if you're interested in learning a little bit more about our research product, we have product for both institutional and individual investors. It's at F. FTT LLC.com. That's Frank Frank Tom Tom LLC.com. If you're interested in following what we're uh, doing, talking about, et cetera, we've got a pretty active Twitter feed at, at Luke Roman. It's L U K E G R O M E N.
0: Excellent. Well, I really enjoyed chatting with you, Luke. Thank you for joining me.
1: Thanks for having me on, Stefan. It was a great conversation. I really appreciate it.
0: Subscribe to the show in your podcatcher applications and you can find the show notes at stefanlevera.com 247 for this episode. Thanks and I will see you in the Citadels.